Hi everyone, welcome to Human to Human. I'm your host Sarah Scher, and this is the very first season of the University of Manitoba's Anthropology Department podcast, where I hope to explore the topic of anthropology through conversation with faculty and students so that everyone can have a better understanding of what anthropology is and can be. This podcast was also created on a campus located on the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene people, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. As a podcast dedicated to anthropology, this project is also a part of the Anthropology Department's commitment to community engagement and research on the rich, diverse, and multifaceted ways of being human. Once again, I'm your host Sarah Scher, and this is Human to Human. everyone, thanks for joining us on another episode of Human to Human. I'm Sarah, and today we are going to be talking a bit about what biological anthropology is, also sometimes called physical anthropology. But first, I'd like to give a warm welcome to our guest, Dr. Julia Gamble. Dr. Gamble is a biological anthropologist and currently an assistant professor here at the University of Manitoba, whose research interests have lied in bioarchaeology, dental and medieval anthropology, life history, and developmental origins of health and disease in past populations, specifically in Northern and Central Europe, as well as Baffin Island. Some of your recent research projects have included investigating dental enamel defects and age at death from medieval Danish cemeteries, as well as a collaborative project looking at dental development and stress patterns in past populations of Baffin Island caribou. Dr. Gamble, it's so nice for you to be here today so we can chat further about biological anthropology. Uh, So I thank you for being here. Thank you, Sarah. I'm really glad to be here. So I've had one class with you before, Demography of Past Populations. And even though that was an online course, we did get to meet in person as a field trip to the St. James Cemetery. We also were able to chat with the knowledge keepers there at the church who kind of could tell us more about the history of the cemetery. And I think that gave me a good idea of how biological anthropology, even though it studies the past, we also talk to people in the present day to contextualize our information. So I was also wondering if we could start off though with you telling us a bit about how you became interested in anthropology and, yeah, where your journey began as a university student. Well, my journey in anthropology actually began well before university. I moved out kind of to the country um, when I was 11 or so, and uh, I started finding things in the backyard. And then in, in university... I took an intro to anthropology class, and I'd been going for medicine, and that kind of convinced me to make the switch. So I switched in second year and uh, ended up in anthropology. Okay, so your journey began with looking in your own backyard Mm -hmm. and finding things. Mm -hmm. So how did your interest into biological anthropology specifically kind of start? So that was in undergraduate um, courses. I had some amazing undergraduate instructors so and and it was a quite a heavy program in osteology human evolution professor mary silcox was there for example and she was a very uh, dominant influence um, on my career progression and uh, i had a wonderful undergraduate student body as well to support me so we had an anthropology students association and we used to go from class to class together and so a lot of exposure to osteology, paleopathology, human evolution, primate anatomy during that time. Okay. Um, 
But I wasn't going to be an osteologist until partway through my master's, actually. I, was, I went into European historical archaeology in the UK, got there and realized that I missed that he- more heavily scientific component of working mm-hmm. with uh, human osteology, and I kind of switched back midway through my master's. So um, I enjoy the balance. Human osteology is really a social science. I'm still very interested in, in archaeology um, as well, so I do count myself a bioarchaeologist. Yeah, okay, for sure. And there's definitely a lot of overlap between those two subfields within anthropology. Mm -hmm. Um, Both are dealing with usually people and items from the past. Mm -hmm. So you also mentioned, though, that you were originally interested in medicine. And there is a lot of science and health-related information involved with osteology and biological anthropology. So how would you say that your interest in medicine and now your your work in biological anthropology has kind of satisfied your, your original interest in medicine and human bodies? Well, I'm very interested in health and well-being, and there's a whole you know debate about how we actually define health, especially in the past, where you can't really ask people how they're feeling. But by looking at people from the past, I can learn something about them and about the past context of human health that, that helps us understand the present in, a, in kind of a different lens. So I'm able to look at the uh, medical side of things, um, but working in a very different context. And I find that very interesting and very fulfilling. Could you speak a bit more about um, the research that you have done already and also maybe like what you're currently working on? Yeah, so I'm interested in life course approaches to health. So I'm very interested in how early life experiences shape our later life health. Mm. And so I work with dental enamel microstructures, sort of uh, microscopic indicators of stress. Uh, Teeth kind of grow like uh, tree rings in a sense. They're incremental structures, which means that if somebody is stressed on a kind of system-wide level, it can appear in their dental enamel. Um, and and other dental tissues. So that captures the early childhood period, basically when our teeth are growing. And then I look at that in relation to the skeleton for later life health. So a lot of my research is tied in with that. But in terms of the health side, understanding that that bigger picture is pretty important. So other aspects of my research have looked at um, trying to identify the things that might have affected health in in a, any given context. So that's where I've, I've been working on a collaborative project with pathogen DNA work to try to identify the diseases, in that case in a medieval Danish populations. So we look at pathogen DNA in, um, that's in collaboration with McMaster University. In this case, the focus has ended up being um, identifying Yersinia pestis, which is the causative agent of plague. So, and that helps to kind of see, okay, what diseases were were people dealing with? What were their experiences? And that's just one kind of component of that. So, yeah. So you focus on studying teeth quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And you spoke a little bit about how teeth are kind of like trees in the sense that they have rings and they hold a lot of information about past health. But could you maybe explain a bit further why teeth are such a great way to study past health and disease? Yeah, so teeth, um, you know, when I was in undergrad, I hated teeth. I think a lot <laughs> okay. of undergrads, uh, you know, the first time you look at teeth, they're, 
they're very hard to learn, um, hard to identify, and uh, their anatomy is relatively complex. But teeth are actually amazing repositories of information. They form incrementally. They capture information that you could identify down to potentially the day if you, if you had early enough dental development represented. They can tell us about diet, both in terms of isotopes and in terms of microware, potentially. The dental plaque that calcifies as uh, calculus has, uh, is a treasure trove of information. And teeth, dental enamel is one of the hardest biological substances, so they're also more likely to survive mm. than um, in many contexts than bone. So they, they carry tons of information and... These days, there's a um, new methodology that even helps us identify sex from, from teeth um, in terms of a biological sex, that is. So, mm-hmm. um, so if you're going to have a single thing that can give you information, um, teeth are pretty high on that spectrum. Is there any differences between teeth that maybe have more cavities? Do you glean something different, or is that not necessarily important? Well, cavities are related to a number of things. They're related to genetics in terms of enamel structure. Um, They're related to diet. Mm. Um, Obviously, dental hygiene is in there as well. So teasing that apart can sometimes be challenging as a biological anthropologist, but in terms of people these days, if they have a lot of cavities, it, it could come down to a range of things. So it's not necessarily an issue in terms of the quality of the teeth necessarily. Like there's still always information that you can get despite cavities and other things and whatnot, right? Yeah, there's definitely still information. You would uh, you would have to acknowledge if there are cavities and there would be some limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, the pathogen DNA research, depending on, you know, the the condition of the tooth. Um, You might not be able to do pathogen DNA work on it. Depending on where the cavity is located, it might affect the microstructure visibility. So I might not be able to see the stress markers in the same way. So you would just have to kind of consider the what's going on before you kind of move forward. Okay, so you did this other project in Baffin Island, or on Baffin Island caribou, and that was a collaborative project with other like zoo archaeologists would you consider? That was with Professor Brooke Milne who's now at University of Alberta. Um, She was at University of Manitoba. She's actually a lithic, more lithic specialist. She's an arctic archaeologist and so the caribou were excavated as part of her work Mm. um, on Baffin Island. So I haven't actually gone up to Baffin Island Okay, but that is something Professor Milne was uh, acquired funding for an amazing microscope. It's a laser confocal microscope, the LEXT, and it's good at surface analysis. So I kind of took the dental work that I've been doing on humans, and we tried to look at caribou teeth with it. Um, So that's an ongoing thing. It's it's been fairly quiet through the pandemic. We have had a master's student who uh, just graduated and defended an amazing thesis on it, but there's definitely still a lot more work to do. Okay. So this is one example where like different anthropologists are coming together to collaborate with their own different expertise. Right, yeah. So ultimately we're interested in stress in mm. caribou populations, and we're interested in whether we can see that on teeth. And if we can see that on teeth, we're 
wanting to find out what it looks like in modern herds and whether there are any um, patterns that emerge in relation to past herds because there's been um, a lot of herd fluctuation over time. They've gone through cyclical patterns of there being many caribou and then herds just being decimated and right now they're in um, serious decline. So it's pretty important to understand that decline in terms of historic context. How severe is it in relation to what's happened in the past? And we were hoping that the dental analysis might provide us with some understanding of, of how stress relates to that. So that's kind of the, the scope, the, the main objective in a nutshell, I guess. Mm-hmm. But to get at that, we need to understand caribou dentition. We have to understand more about caribou dental development and how these stress markers actually manifest both on the surface and internally. And that's something that hasn't really been done very much. Yeah. So, so that's kind of how to build the framework or the foundation first. So would you say that in biological anthropology, the main focus is on studying humans? Like how much opportunity would you say is there to study animals? There, there can be a fair bit of overlap. They're too often do stay separate. So zoo archaeologists will focus on animals and human osteologists will focus on humans. But there's a lot of crossover in terms of the skills and the tools that we use. So there can often be collaboration and sometimes there can be some cross-pollination in terms of of research. Um, But dominantly, most human osteologists will stay human osteologists and most zoo archaeologists would stay zoo archaeologists. There's just too much scope to to really do everything, but not exclusively, right? Sometimes you can apply the similar things to to investigate questions with other species, so. Okay. Yeah. I think that's quite clear in terms of trying to understand the, the differences between the two disciplines. And if someone is wanting to study animals, they wouldn't become a human osteologist because that's more focused on like human bones, right? Or human remains. Yeah, they probably take courses in human osteology, and um, like Professor Greenfield here could teach human osteology, I expect. I could teach the basics of zoo archaeology in terms of I can recognize other animal bones and usually have a fair sense of species, but for more than that, I would need a reference collection, and for going into kind of the nuances of human osteology and paleopathology, um, Professor Greenfield would probably need to go farther with a, with a human mm-hmm. osteologist as an expert. Okay, and before you previously mentioned that you were, did you say you were looking at the pathogen for the plague? Mm-hmm. Why would it be important or relevant to look at information regarding the past plague in terms of now? Well, um, the... Currently, the dominant understanding is that that bubonic plague or the plague pathogen was the most likely causative agent of Black Death, which Mm. was the episode in the mid-14th century that really decimated populations across Eurasia and even likely in Africa. So we're looking at potentially around 50% mortality rate. It had huge impacts on people in terms of social and economic factors. We look at people who came who survived and um, the world coming out of that. And it was very different in terms of the uh, work environment. In some ways, there are parallels to the COVID pandemic in terms Mm. of it shifting the work environment, the demand for workers and what uh, workers are willing to put up with in a sense. Coming out of the Black Death, there were far fewer people to do the jobs. 
and they were able to um, change their demands in terms of work and living conditions. So there are those aspects and then there's also from an evolutionary standpoint a disease that did kill a large swath of people and we've just published a paper in uh, Nature. Uh, this is colleagues out of Chicago, um, McMaster. This is a very much a collaborative team. Relatively recent PhD graduate uh, Jennifer Clunk is the first author on it. But this paper um, has identified one of the most significant selective kind of signatures coming out from Black Death, from the Black Death episode in human populations um, that's really been identified before. So meaning that the Black Death looks like it did have a fairly serious selective impact in shaped immune genes that are still having an influence on modern populations in terms of chronic disease like autoimmune diseases. So past epidemics, past diseases, this one being a prime example, can have a serious impact on populations socially, economically, in terms of adaptation, and those can continue to affect us even um, in this case, half a half a millennium later. So okay, so this is kind of an example of why studying the past is still quite relevant to today. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this information that you're looking at would also be used by people in medicine? Are they looking at the the research from human osteology or biological anthropology? Uh, sometimes uh, it depends on the aspect that is being studied, but we do get a lot of um, overlap. We do get, for example, at conferences, you will get some doctors attending paleopathology conferences. Mm. So you do get, get some overlap, potentially not as much as might be beneficial for both sides. I think mm. it tends to be a lot more in the direction of, of human osteologists reading the medical literature than the other way around, but it does happen both ways. In terms of, like, you focus on the life course and health and disease and the impact of that, like, early on in life to later in life, right? Mm -hmm. Is it the same health and diseases that we have today for the most part, or is it very different? So there is a lot of overlap. Many of the diseases that we saw in the past are still here today. Plague is still around today. Other infectious diseases that we tend to look at, like leprosy and tuberculosis, um, those are still affecting people today. Dental cavities are still a thing, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, Fortunately, with sort of medical approaches, you would would be less likely to see somebody dying from a dental abscess these days. Mm. Um, We have antibiotics that can deal with that. But at the same time, we live in a world that is... um, where not everyone has equal access. And so in areas where there's less access to to healthcare or in segments of the population that are uh, disenfranchised and wouldn't have the same access, you could get uh, very similar experiences to to in the past. But one thing anthropology really teaches is that nothing is is straightforward. Mm -hmm. Everything is contextual. So we can never really reduce a a situation um, now as being exactly the same as the past, just as we can't do it the other way around. So there's a lot more nuance to it. Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. And what would you say as a human osteologist, what are some of the ethical considerations in terms of studying human remains? Mm, It's a really good question. Um, 
we are constantly dealing with ethical considerations when we're dealing with human remains. And this is something that, uh, you know, there's often no, no clear right or wrong answer on. So in terms of obviously um, Indigenous ancestral remains, uh, this is something that we are grappling with a difficult history and increasingly working to reconcile things that have happened in the past and need to be corrected. My research has never worked with Indigenous remains mm-hmm. um, or Indigenous ancestors, but it's, it's something that many units around uh, the world are, are working with. When we're dealing with human, uh, with, with people from the past, one of the important things is try to have conversations with any descendant groups and to try to understand kind of where people might have positioned themselves. And depending on where you are, that may be more or less, or how old the people you're working with are, it can be more or less complicated. Mm. So, but it's something that I think most osteologists these days will try to really take into account. And um, there are usually regulate kind of uh, guidelines with any academic institution you're affiliated with to try to oversee that and guide you in, in how, you, how you work with people. But ultimately, we work with people and human remains are, were once people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's something that we try to keep in mind. Could you maybe describe, if you were to carry out a research project, what that sort of looks like in terms of where are you spending most of your time? Are you in a lab? Are you out chatting with locals or knowledge keepers? Or are you like in the field? So it depends on the project and it depends on what stage of the project. I do spend a lot of time in the lab. So during the kind of uh, collecting osteological information, I would often be in an osteology lab whether in Denmark these days, um, in Austria. So uh, it's a very hands-on setting there. For later stages, I might be in a lab in front of a microscope. I have worked with exhumation. So some of the, the Danish work did involve an excavation component. We ran a field school out there. But there are many um, people who have been exhumed in the past and so we tend to be pretty careful in terms of whether further excavation is justified. Mm. So, so I have done it in that context and also in Greece. I, I did some work out there, but a lot of my work is in front of a computer or in a lab context. Okay. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? Because archaeology and anthropology often involve activities that can't be re re-put back together, I guess, if you're mm-hmm. ever excavating an area. So it's a really important thing to consider. Mm-hmm. Is there any interesting findings that you've discovered in your work in Austria or Denmark about the people or the past populations that you were looking at? Uh, yeah, well, I guess one thing that we find is that findings are usually fairly complicated. You often yeah. don't get exactly <laughs> what you expect when you start out on a project. But uh, one thing that, that comes out a lot in my work, and it wasn't an expected result, uh, was the different patterns emerging between males and females. In terms of what we know from biological sex, we don't have, um, we don't have the nuance in there. But there's a different pattern of mortality in relation to early life stress between males and females. 
males uh, tend to have more likelihood of reduced age at death, so they don't live as long um, if they had more stress as a child. Whereas females, it either has no relationship or potentially even a positive um, pattern emerges. So females might even live longer if they have more stress episodes in their teeth. And I'm not sure why mm, yet. Yeah, it's um, an interesting question. Yeah, it's uh, we do uh, in terms of medical literature know that there, you know, there obviously are differences between males and females. There are differences in how we respond to stress, how we experience trauma, how we experience infectious disease, and immune-related factors. So we know there are differences. It's just figuring out what it means and connecting the dots between what I see and what that means in terms of the, what we know from the modern populations. But, but it is interesting. One of the outstanding pieces has been that we couldn't see uh, distinguished male and female in, uh, in children because the bones don't really, they're not sexually dimorphic in children, in younger people. So we're now starting to make inroads on that with a proteomics method. We are for the first time able to see males and females with children from these past populations really without some of the constraints of earlier methods. So I think, I'm hoping that that will give us a little bit more insight into this, into whether it's something that is apparent in children, whether there's a difference in stress or the health experience in children as well as in the adults. Okay. So is sex usually a factor that you are looking at with human osteology? Yeah, I think um, some of the core factors that most human osteologists will look at, basic identifying variables, so age, sex, those are kind of, if you're going to look at anything, those are, those are two of them. Those are the two main things, so kind of one of the first things that you do. And it's definitely one of the things that I've looked at in terms of my, my questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in terms of contextualizing your information, do you have to do a lot of reading and research on, let's say, the culture, the area of the people that you're studying in the past? Definitely. That's So part of bioarchaeology is really understanding the context people were living in. So my research does go into trying to understand what was happening um, around that time. So it goes into the historical literature, the archaeological literature. So it's definitely kind of crosses the spheres. Could you maybe share with us your interest in studying the past compared to studying the present? Yeah, I've always been interested in history. Um, I've always been interested in kind of how people lived in the past and what their experiences were like. So I guess that that kind of prevails through to this. I'm interested in living people too. So I am in teaching. I have taught medical anthropology and still find the understanding socioeconomic differences in the impacts on health in particular and the developmental origins of health and disease in modern populations really, really interesting. So I guess anthropologists dabble in multiple areas. Not necessarily dabble, but we tend to have fairly broad interests. But I'm interested in kind of bringing those two aspects together, past and present. Okay. Is forensic anthropology a part of biological anthropology? It is, yes. So it's kind of the modern correlate. So forensic anthropology um, would use many of the same skills as a bioarchaeologist, um, but applied to uh, modern populations and potentially in contexts where there might be legal implications. Okay. Awesome. Well, Dr. Gamble, this has been great to hear more about your work, and I think that we're, we're almost wrapping up here. 
So I I have a few quick fun questions. Do you have a favorite bone in the body? Favorite bone in the body, or it could be teeth. I guess is teeth your favorite thing I think to study? Teeth would, yeah, teeth okay. Would do the job. Yeah. <laughs> this is a completely different direction. What is one of your favorite foods or dishes to eat? Ooh, see, I like eating most foods. I've always liked okay. trying all sorts of different things. Yeah. Um, I really like uh, seafood. I like calamari, so uh, we'll oh, maybe maybe say calamari because that's quite good. Okay, is there a good place to get calamari in Manitoba? Uh, Nico's on Corridon is really good. Okay, so they cool. Have, they're probably one of my favorites right now. Well, that's that's awesome because I actually live very close there, so I might be able to go try it out. Yeah. Yeah, and also, what is one place that you would like to travel to? It could be a place that you have been before. I I have been here before, but I'd love to go back to Greece. Um, I did the Astapalia Field School there when I was in my PhD, and uh, I loved the the people, the pace, um, but didn't get too much time to actually do touristy things Mm. or really, really see more than kind of the island we were on, so I would love to go back and experience it more. Interesting. Yeah, Greece is beautiful. I've never been there, but there's a lot of history and old architecture there as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So this brings us to the end of this episode here on Human to Human. If you are new to anthropology, I hope you were able to gain a better understanding of what anthropology is and some of the topics that a bioarchaeologist could study. I also hope you will join me in the next episode where I do an interview with Kevin Edbert, who is currently a master's student in anthropology here at the University of Manitoba. In my interview with Kevin, we'll get to hear more about his experience of continuing his studies in anthropology and applying for grad school, as well as what it's been like to be an international student in Manitoba. And we'll also hear more about Kevin's research interests in studying the well-being of people who process dried fish from a region in Indonesia. If you want to hear more from this podcast, Human to Human is available for listening on several platforms. We are on Spotify, Apple, SoundCloud, as well as YouTube. If you like this episode or have any questions, it would be great to hear from you in the comment section. We also have an email that you can contact the podcast through, and that will be included in the description box down below. I would also like to give a special thanks to the people at UMFM for providing me with the space and equipment to make this podcast possible, as well as the Department of Anthropology for funding this project, and of course, Dr. Laura rosenoff Gobin, Dr. Warren Clark, and Dr. William Flynn at Carleton University, who have been some of my supporters in making this project happen. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you join me, Sarah Scher, on the next episode of Human to Human.